Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Glad you're here with us. My wife and I enjoy going to Disney World. We're, we're, yeah, that's how I feel. We're those people, my wife and I. We're those, I know, we're those people. We like it. I want to tell you about some of my favorite attractions at Disney World, okay? Space Mountain. Space Mountain. It's a classic. It's a ro- Thank you for the, yep, Space Mountain's a good one. Roller coaster in the dark. You don't know what's about to happen, right? And in addition to the thrill of it all, there's a cool, what they call retro-futuristic aesthetic to the ride. So the ride's design is what the past thought the future might look like. Retro-futurism. And I, I like that aesthetic. It's kind of futuristic, hopeful, um, optimistic about what humanity may accomplish in the future. So I love that ride. On the other side of the spectrum from hope and optimism is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Okay, yeah, so I, I love this ride too. And I'm a, I've been a Twilight Zone fanatic since I was a little kid. Okay, I love that show. And so that ride is your own episode of the Twilight Zone. You literally walk into the Twilight Zone through this haunted hotel, and you go through and you get on a faulty elevator that, of course, goes up and drops, and it's awesome. But there's a ride at Disney World that thrills me like no other. It's called Living with the Land. Can I get a witness? On, no, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. But I love the ride Living with the Land. Let me tell you about it. It's a slow boat ride through different ecosystems. <laughs> and it ends in a series of greenhouse laboratories. So you start the ride, and it's got this nice, calm voiceover. And you go through a North American forest, and then you go through um, a rainforest, you go through a desert, you go to a kind of a farmscape, and you go into the barn of the farm, and then you're kind of transported into the greenhouses. And you're told that there, Disney scientists work with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to study how seeds grow and study how we can more effectively grow plants to feed the world. And so I love this ride because it's, it's nice and calming. You know, long days in Disney World, hot sun. You go into this ride and just a calm voice talking to you and plants everywhere. And in addition to the calming effect, there's also that f- effect that has been studied of having plants around you. Whenever we are surrounded by plants, greenery, we get kind of a feeling of a boost, right? So it's got a calming effect and a little boost living with the land. This is why I love it so much. And, and I also just am interested in the idea of growth. You have, we have seeds that grow. Seeds don't look like much, but they can become something amazing. And in fact, I found a poem on this theme of seeds and their potential. It's called The Seed Shop, and it's by Muriel Stewart. And yes, I'm going to read it to you. We're going to have a poetry reading here. You don't need to snap or anything. When I'm done, I didn't write it. But I like this poem quite a lot because I think it does, in very beautiful language, capture the amazing potential enclosed within seeds. So here you go. Here in a quiet and dusty room, they lie, faded as crumbled stone or shifting sand, forlorn as ashes, shriveled, scentless, dry. Meadows and gardens running through my hand. In this brown husk, a dale of hawthorn dreams. A cedar in this narrow cell is thrust that will drink deeply of a century's streams. These lilies shall make summer on my dust. Here in their safe and simple house of death, sealed in their shells, a million roses leap. 
Here I can blow a garden with my breath, and in my hand a forest lies asleep. So Jesus liked to use the astonishing potential in seeds to illustrate spiritual truths, and he does so in our main text today, which you'll find in Mark 4, 26 through 32. Mark 4, 26 through 32. I invite you to turn there or pull it up on your device. We'll also have the verses on the screen as always. If you're pulling it up on a device, I'll be reading from the New King James today. And here we're going to read in Mark 4, 26 through 32, two parables that use seeds to teach us about the growth of God's kingdom. So let's read. Again, Mark 4, 26. And he, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Then he said, this is the second parable, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So we're gonna take three points from these two parables today. The first point is that God's power builds the kingdom. We all have our part to do in building God's kingdom around the world, but it's ultimately God's power that is doing the building. The second point is that God is working behind the scenes. God is building his kingdom, but we don't always see it. And the third point is the kingdom is growing. Contrary to the naysaying of some, the kingdom of God is growing around the world. So the first point is God's power builds the kingdom. In the first parable, we read of a farmer who plants seeds and yet doesn't know fully how the seeds grow. He plants the seeds and the earth brings forth the increase. There's the seed in the soil, there's rain, there's sunlight, and that's what's actually bringing the increase. So, of course, farmers have a lot of work to do. Sometimes it's very laborious work and stressful work, but ultimately the true power of growth is in the climate, is in the soil, is in the seed, is in the sun. Similarly, in this parable, we see that while we have work to do to contribute to God's kingdom, in the end, it's God's power and grace that is doing the building. The famous early Christian missionary Paul wrote about this in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, Greece. This church was struggling. They're having a number of struggles that he addressed in the letter, but the one that he's addressing in the passage we're about to read is dividing into factions. They were becoming in they were becoming a church that said, well, I follow this teacher, and, and I follow this teacher. What does that sound like? A bunch of people, right? <laughs> Got to divide into tribes and argue with each other about it, right? So Paul is talking about that, and in dealing with this schismatic tendency, he gives us this important point that God is really the one doing the work, not this or that teacher. So let's read this passage. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So Paul here in this first verse, notice he's getting on them pretty good. He's saying to them, listen, I can't write to you as if you're really living in the spirit of God. I can't, I can't write to you as if you are spiritual people. I've got to write to you as if you are people just giving in to your biological impulses, your animalian impulses. You're just acting like a bunch of people that haven't received the spirit. That's what he means when he says you're being carnal. Verse two, I fed you with milk 
and not with solid food. Here's a food metaphor. He's saying, I had to teach you lower level stuff. You're not ready for the big level stuff, the big level spiritual truths. For until now, you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men and women? I love that question. Mere mortals, right? Whenever you have this envy and strife and division in your groups of people or in your life, you're not living up to the divine calling that we all have. You're behaving like a mere mortal. He's saying, essentially, you're behaving like animals, not like people who have the spirit of God within them. Verse four, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's the phrasing that we wanna look at today. God gave the increase. Yes, we've got a part to play as humans but God is the one who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. We're just helping out. At the end of the day, you're not our church or that person's church, you're God's church. God's the one who brings the increase. God in his immense grace allows us the joy of working with him to build his kingdom But let's not forget that ultimately his power is what's working through us and in the circumstances around us such that the kingdom will grow. God brings the increase. Now, this is not simply a theological point to humble us, though it is that. It's also a point that should comfort us and encourage us to take action. It should comfort us because we can release control. It's not up to my or your brilliant intellect or my or your physical prowess to build the kingdom. We bring what we can and God uses his infinite brilliance and infinite power to bring about the increase that he wants to bring about in the world. This point should also encourage us to take action because it shows that God can take whatever meager efforts we offer and he can do something big with those efforts. He can accomplish great purposes even with our meager offerings. This is illustrated by the well-known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the only miracle other than the resurrection recorded in each of the four gospels. I'm gonna read you the version of that story from Matthew. It's in Matthew 14, 14 through 21. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. We know from John's account of this miracle that the food came from a young man or even a boy, and that's the only food that was seemingly available at the time. So of course the disciples say, hey, we don't have that much to offer. We got a lot of people here, and we don't have much to give them. The task is too large, and we have only this paltry amount. Let's keep reading and see what Jesus says to this. He said to them, Bring them here to me, meaning bring the loaves and fish to me. This is the key point here. What they had was not enough to feed the thousands of people present. But God says, bring me what you do have, and I can make it enough. So then he, Jesus, commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. 
and the disciples gave to the multitude. So here we have a miracle of multiplication. So they all ate, meaning all the people present ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Not only did Jesus fill everyone to a point of satiety where they felt full, there was a whole bunch left over. He's making a point here. Whatever little bit we can give to God, not only can he make it do great things, he can make it do more than we even need or imagine. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children, so there were thousands of people there. And we learn from this story that God can take whatever we have to offer through his power, grow it, and make it something great. As I examine my own psyche, yikes, you ever do that? You like look and you're like, I don't like what's going on there, honestly. But as I examine my own thoughts, and as I talk to other people about their thoughts, and as I observe people's behavior and so on, I observe this strange psychological quirk. It's the quirk of this. I don't have much that I can give, or I don't have much to offer, so I'm just not gonna do anything. You know this that I'm talking about? I read in a, a book from a preacher once, uh, a lady had told him, I've only got you know, a limited amount of time that I can work out in the week, I've only got maybe 20 minutes a few times a week, and so I'm just not gonna do it. And of course this preacher pointed out, you know, 20 minutes a few times a week is not that bad, that's gonna help you, so why not just do it? But that little anecdote illustrates this mental quirk that I'm thinking of. If I can only give a little bit, how much is that really gonna help? If I can only do this little behind the scenes work, oh, someone else can do that. But we gotta remember, whatever little bit we can give can go a long way, not because it's a lot, but because God can do things we can't even imagine. So the question then for all of us is, what little bit can I be contributing? What little bit from my finances, from my efforts? What little bit of my talents? What little bit of my time can I give that I'm not currently giving? Because we can give and see God do amazing things, the little things that we can offer him. The second point today is this God is working behind the scenes. In the first parable of our text, the farmer doesn't fully comprehend the growth that's happening in his plants, he doesn't see that as all the things happening like on the cellular level. He's not seeing the cells divide and grow. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand the botanical processes of plant growth. And of course, we don't really fully understand those processes now. We like to pat ourselves on the back as every generation does and think we've arrived, right? We know what there is to know. But in reality, we don't know very much about the physical world. We're still learning quite a lot. The scientists at Living with the Land are working on this, right? I paused again for someone to testify about living with the land. It didn't happen. I, like I said, I just don't, I didn't expect that, but you never know. But we're learning about these botanical processes. We're learning about plants and so on. But the farmer doesn't understand how it works, but the plants grow anyway. Similarly, God is working in the world in ways that we don't see, in ways that we don't understand. In fact, most of what he's doing, we don't see and we don't understand. I got a shout out to Ben for a sermon last week when he talked about this important question. Two important questions, actually if I'm remembering correctly. Is God there? Does he care? We like to ask these questions of ourselves in the storm. And the answer has been pointed out, it's a resounding yes. God's there and he cares. But as this parable points out, we don't always see it clearly. We don't always know exactly what God's doing. We don't always see exactly what's going on in our lives or in the world. I wanna talk about the book of Esther for a minute. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's got an absorbing narrative. It's a great story. And it hits all the beats of kind of a suspense story, um, and I'd like that type of thing. It's kind of a, it's kind of a thriller. You, you think of Esther, you don't really think of, a, of it as a thriller, but that's really what it is. And for those who maybe don't remember the story and never encountered it before, let me give you a sketch of the narrative. 
There's lots of great details that I won't be able to get into for time's sake, but I do want to give you a quick sketch. So it takes place when Persia was the dominant empire in the Middle East, and the emperor of Persia at the time is who we know now as Xerxes. The Bible refers to him as a Hazarus, but we know that that was Xerxes. And some historians think, by the way, just an interesting tidbit here, that Xerxes, in the time of this story in the book of Esther, had just returned from his failed Greek campaign, which had been foiled in no small part uh, by the Spartans. 300 of them made a last stand at Thermopylae. And so some people think this is happening right after that. Regardless of what had happened, here's what did happen. A young Jewish maiden is taken as a consort of Xerxes. And so Xerxes marries her. And she becomes aware of the fact that there is a plot against her people. An evil counselor of the emperor wants to exterminate the Jewish people. And so Esther realizes she needs to bring this to the attention of the emperor. And she was married, obviously, to him at this very serendipitous time because the threat comes about when she's married to him and she has the opportunity to approach him to say, hey, my people are under threat. Now, here's where the suspense really gets going. She's not allowed to go into the emperor's presence without being summoned. And if she does do that, that could be seen as a sign of disrespect, and Xerxes could just have her killed. But she doesn't know the next time she's gonna be summoned. She doesn't know the next time she's gonna speak to Xerxes, and she feels that time is of the essence, and that she, to use a phrase from the book, has been raised up for the time to try and help save her people. And so she takes her life into her hands and she goes into the royal court. We can only imagine the grand finery and the, the throne that Xerxes sat upon, but she goes into the court and Xerxes hears her out. And through that act of courage, Esther saves her people. Now, that's the narrative. But what I really wanna talk about today is the literary technique of the book of Esther. It's extremely unique in the spiritual literature of the world in this way. God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. Now, it's been understood even since the days of its composition that this is a book of spiritual truth. And yet, the spiritual reality of God's presence in the world is not explicitly explored. So what's going on here? Is this an oversight of some kind? Not at all. On the contrary, this is a genius rhetorical decision on the part of the author because here's what happens. As you read the book of Esther, you see all these amazing things happening. Esther being... Um, raised up to that position at an important time. And, and the Xerxes billing, being willing to listen to her. And you see all these things happening. And because you don't see God operating here and God operating there, you start to read the book and see God operating implicitly everywhere. God's working in the good in the story, creating situations, moving in people's hearts. And in the bad in the story, he's redeeming the situation and making it better. We need to learn the lesson of the book of Esther, that God is there working behind the scenes. When we do, one of the benefits, there's a lot of good benefits, but one of the big benefits is this, the anxiety that is such a plague on our modern American society will diminish significantly if we can recognize that God is in the good and redeeming the bad all around us, even though we don't recognize it. We have to learn to see the world the way that we read the book of Esther. God's not just here for a minute and here for a minute. He's everywhere in everything, doing his good work. So if you're talking about this theme, you gotta read one verse, okay? You gotta read Romans 8, 28, so we're gonna do it. 
It's one of the best verses in the Bible. We often retreat to this verse, and we should. Here's what we read there. And we know, we know, we don't hope about this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God. This verse, by the way, does not say that all things are good. It's not that all things are good. Obviously, there's a lot of bad things in the world. And evil's not some like tool that God uses in the world. I think that's a theological error. There are things that are actually bad. But all things work together for good. That is, God can redeem even the bad things so that all things are turning out the way he wants to for the good ends that we can't even fully fathom for his people. Our final point today is this, the kingdom is growing. In the second parable, we see a tiny seed become a gigantic shrub. You know, the kingdom of God started small. Christianity itself started small. It started with an itinerant preacher who was actually a carpenter by trade, and he traveled around, and he, he was teaching, and he got into religious leaders, these religious leaders who loved rules, and he would debate them, and put them in their place, and he's saying, look, look, what's really important is that we love God and love people. A very simple message from a person who was just traveling around preaching and healing people from a backwater town. And yet it's grown into something, a movement, the way, as it was called by the early Christians, has completely changed the world in ways that we'll see in just a moment. Do you ever hear in the news or in conversations, or do you ever say, the kingdom is in decline? Kingdom's currently in decline. Have you heard this? The kingdom is in decline. Well, as Dwight Schrute might put it, false. It is not in decline, okay? He wouldn't smile, I'm smiling a little bit because I'm laughing at myself, but uh, he wouldn't be smiling when he said it, false, okay? The kingdom is not in decline, this is, this is untrue. This is an untrue maxim that we hear ventured forth by people who aren't really paying attention. Now, while it is true that church attendance in certain denominations in Western Europe and in North America has declined, that's not the kingdom. We've got a kingdom growing all over the world in ways that are truly amazing. And we would expect in certain regions for there to be ups and downs in the faith. And a time when maybe church attendance is down in certain denominations in Western Europe and the United States can be viewed as an opportunity. There are opportunities that come with a downturn. Um, and so we've got to remember, but though, there's this global perspective, and just seeing a decline in certain regions is not a decline in the kingdom. So for a global perspective, I want to read you a quotation from a great book. It's called The Story of Christianity, single-volume history of Christianity, starting with the Jewish people and going up to the present. It's by Eastern Orthodox scholar David Bentley Hart. And in the conclusion of the book, here's what he writes. Christianity has now entered its third millennium and no one obviously can foresee what shapes it will assume in the centuries ahead, what renewals it may or may not know, what divisions or reconciliations it may experience. What is certainly the case, however, is that the sage and confident predictions of the faith's imminent demise that were such a vogue in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and that one still occasionally hears ventured by inattentive observers today, will not be proved correct. In absolute and relative numbers, the world's community of Christians is far larger than it has ever been, and its rate of expansion is as nothing it has ever known in the past. So these are the facts. 
And when he says in both absolute and relative numbers, let me tell you what he's meaning there. Absolute numbers meaning the number of Christians is greater than has ever been in any time in world history. The relative number means there is a proportion of the world that is Christian, and that proportion of the world as a percentage of the entire population is greater than it has ever been. And the rates of growth are greater than they have ever been. Not only do we see Christianity and the kingdom growing by seeing people come to Christ and choose to follow him with their lives, we also see its influence growing in ways that are too often ignored. I mentioned in my Christmas sermon the work of a popular historian called Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor. Again, I have to make, I told you in December, I'll tell you again, they're both cool guys, they're both British, but this guy's a writer, Tom Holland's an actor, right? So Tom Holland, the historian, wrote a book called Dominion, and it's a thick book, and it's about how the values of Christianity have become pervasive in our culture and many other cultures around the world. And the basic thesis is very simple. In the ancient world, everywhere, the ethos was might makes right. If you have the power to do something, you have the right to do it. If you're rich and powerful, that means you are good. And somehow that ethos, that character, that understanding of morality changed dramatically. And so Tom Holland became interested in that change and started studying it from a historical perspective. He's an agnostic, not a believer, by the way. The conclusion that he came to was this. We care about marginalized people now. We care about everybody, those who are in prison, those who are sick. We know at least that we should care about them. We don't always live up to that standard, but we know at least that we should be doing it, and most cultures recognize that we should be doing it, and the reason is Jesus Christ and his followers completely changed the world. So that influence, that culture, Christ has exercised, to use the title of the book, his dominion in the shaping of the moral landscape of the world. Again, this is a fact. Let me tell you about another scholar, this one named Robert Woodbury. He has studied the impact of Protestant missions around the world. He used astonishingly sophisticated methodologies in conjunction with a wealth of data that was very carefully controlled to arrive at his conclusions. And he had to have a significant amount of rigor in the work that he was doing because, as you might expect, some scholars who were doing peer review on his work, his PhD work and papers that he was trying to publish in peer-reviewed journals, many of them were hostile to the message that he, not all, by the way, but many were hostile to this message, and so he really had to show in the data that his conclusions were sound. And let me give you, well, let me make one other note. I'm an academic, so this is one of those things I have to say real quick. Um, Protestant missions and Catholic missions are often tied up with the idea of imperialism, and you know, imperialism uh, now is something that's talked about largely in, in the academic world, but Woodbury's work shows us a very important truth which is that missionaries were often at odds with imperialists. They, they went to countries that were imperially ruled um, and from which, no doubt, the imperial rulers were extracting resources in an unscrupulous way. But the missionaries were often fighting against the imperialists and those who had only economic concerns to try and defend the people that they went to. Just a quick note from Woodbury's work that I think is important. But now let me read you the, the conclusion of, what Woodbury, um, of, of Woodbury's work. He says this, here's the effect of Protestant missions. Quote, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today, with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations, which is to say civic involvement beyond simply being involved with the government. So God's kingdom is growing, and its influence is good. The influence is growing as well. Which is to say, God is shining his light 
in the darkness of our broken world. And amazingly, each of us has a role to play in this story of God's redemption. So let me just throw this out there. Some people don't agree with me on this one. That's okay, I invite you to disagree. We should drop the defeatist narrative. We should drop the defeatist narrative about Christianity. The data doesn't support it, it's untrue. And it's also unhelpful. It's not helping us to be like, well, things aren't going that well. You know, things are going quite well. God's working in the world and I think recognizing that and embracing it is going to be comforting and energizing for all of us. So let's drop the defeatist narrative and embrace the narrative of Christ, which is the gates of hell do not prevail. Let's conclude, we'll wrap it up here. So the kingdom of God that we've been talking about today is one that anyone can be a part of. The kingdom's growing now on this earth as people come to follow Christ and as the influence of Christ followers goes out so that we see good things happening around the world that I just mentioned, higher literacy, greater educational attainment, especially for women, better rights for people, and so on. So the influence of that kingdom is growing, but we're also looking forward to a full realization of the kingdom that we see glimmers of now. And anybody can come and experience the kingdom right now and have the hope of the kingdom that's coming in the age to come as the New Testament writers referred to it. It's as simple as turning from these destructive behaviors in our life and coming to God in Christ and receiving him. God became a man called Jesus. And as I said before, he traveled around and he taught love of God, love of neighbor. And at the end of his ministry, he allowed himself to be killed, a death of violence and torture, so that he then could kill the power of death and sin in the world. He rose again three days later, the confirmed king of all, inaugurating this kingdom of God in a new way. And if you've never received Christ before, he's inviting you to receive him now and to have the presence of God and the Holy Spirit within you and to be a part of the kingdom now and look forward to the kingdom that's coming. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes.